Hi, friends, and welcome to not just another, but actually really a very special episode of the End of Sport podcast. It is our 100th episode. Uh, happy 100th, Johanna. Yeah, happy 100th. That's a that's a pretty huge milestone. And we also just passed our two year like a month ago. I mean, we, we didn't do anything for that, really, but our two year was about a month ago. <laughs> It's been a busy time. Um, it's true. The <laughs> yeah. Two years went by, but I mean, 100 episodes, is, that's a lot of episodes. Um, yeah. So I think that that's worth, it's worth acknowledging. Um, and also, we're trying to acknowledge it in what I think is kind of a special way, which is that um, we're starting a new kind of mini series. Um, you know, I'm not, it's not that to say that all of our upcoming episodes will be in this vein, but it's something that we want to do um, more of in the near future. And that is um, a series that we're kind of calling like the end of sport podcast panels uh, and the logic here with these panels is that i would say the very best of the academic conference experience is when you can get a number of folks together uh, around a, a topic and although they may have some sort of predetermined comments that they've um you know composed in advance really the main point is just to have a conversation right uh, about an issue that people share sort of common interest in uh, and sometimes there's a Q&A component and it's just it ends up being a fairly free-flowing conversation the problem with those academic conference panels is that um, they're at academic conferences which means that they are about as inaccessible as a conversation can be in terms of who actually listens to them uh, and so what we're kind of hoping to accomplish here is that we can bring sort of the best part of that that panel experience that that conversation among folks who, who share common interests on a topic, but but share them with you. Um, and uh, so this is our first and maybe Johanna give give folks a sense of what our topic is today. Oh, yeah. So today we had a really, really, we have a really wonderful episode for you all where we are interviewing um, uh, professors Lou Moore, uh, Lucia Trimbor, and Ryan King White, and we are talking, uh, talking with them and through them about how um, sports scholars, you know, with all of the knowledge about um, the, the the benefits, but also the the harmful aspects of sport, kind of how they bring that to the table when it comes to parenting their own kids and navigating them through the sport world themselves. Um, and I mean, it's such a wonderful conversation because they really build on one another well. It is truly a conversation. I think definitely, Nathan, like you said, is like what we see at conferences. And so um, I, I hope that people are going to get a lot out of it and that they'll get a lot out of the nuances that everyone dives into. You know, this is how I handled this child. You know, this is how I adjusted things when I kind of saw that they were participating in sport in a certain way. And this is what I did to sort of help serve their own needs best. And I think I think so. I think it'll be really helpful for people. Yeah, absolutely. I was delighted with how the conversation came out. Um, mm -hmm. So I really want to thank our guests, first of all, um, and, and I can't wait for you to listen to the conversation. And just so you know, um, some future uh, panels that we're going to have, we're going to be thinking about um, fandom and how folks who are not um, scholars of sport, but maybe are very critical scholars in terms of their critiques of exploitation, um, racial capital and racial capitalism and patriarchy more broadly, um, how they kind of negotiate their own experiences of fandom in sport, given the various forms of harm, obviously, that we talk about all the time on this show. Uh, we're going to have a panel with current and former college athletes about what they understand to be the harmful nature of college sport and how they think the system could and should be changed. Um, and I'm also hoping that we're gonna have some panels in the future on um, navigating the 
the kind of experience, navigating the complicities of being a critic of college sport who nonetheless teaches in the university system. Um, and also a panel about uh, the sport media complex itself and working within the sport media complex as a critical sport journalist. So those are just some of the panels I hope you'll be able to look forward to moving forward in the future as we continue this series. Um, so just before we sign off, let me just say, if you would please follow the podcast on Twitter, uh, if you would um, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, um, and if you're feeling especially generous, if you would consider uh, supporting the show on Patreon, we would be eternally grateful to you. Thanks so much, folks. Let me add one thing. Um, I do want to say, like, thanks to listeners for listening to us for 100 episodes. Um, I just um, talked about this on Twitter a fair bit, but uh, Derek and I went to NAS, the North American Society for Sports Sociology. I believe that's what it stands for. Uh, we went to that in April, and it was really wonderful and sort of overwhelming, but really wonderful to meet so many fans of the podcast. I mean, to think that, like, people actually listen to us and sort of take what we say seriously people recognize me based on my voice alone because i was wearing a mask you know it was just really wonderful to have been able to go i mean as we talked about in the lab at last episode we would have loved for it to, for it to have been hybrid to include everybody and not uh kind of perpetuate exclusion um but what i will say is that uh, meeting fans there and meeting people who have learned from us and but also that we are learning from was just really really wonderful and this is all a long way of saying uh thank you listeners for uh listening to us to sticking through it to sticking with us and to just really being a part of this journey it's been really wonderful and thank you so much lewis moore is professor of history at grand valley state university co-host of the black athlete podcast and author of the books i fight for a living boxing in the battle for black manhood and we will win the day, the civil rights movement, the black athlete, and the quest for equality. Lewis, pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. Lucia Trimber is Associate Professor of Sociology and American Studies at CUNY's John Jay College and the Graduate Center, and a Global Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. She is the author of Come Out Swinging, The Changing World of Boxing in Gleason's Gym, and is currently working on her second book, Lights Out, The Creation of the Concussion Crisis, under contract with Columbia University Press. Lucia, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. And finally, last but by no means least, Ryan King-White is Associate Professor of Kinesiology at Towson University and editor of the book Sport and the Neoliberal University, Profit, politics, and pedagogy. Ryan, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Okay, well, this is actually a conversation we've really wanted to have for quite some time. Uh, it's sort of been in the background for us because this is a question that, you know, for people who do work on critical work on sport, um, is always sort of something that they have to deal with in their own personal lives. And that's the question of 
parenting in sport, what it means to have kids, um, and then contemplate the possibility of enrolling them in a system that, or in pursuits that in some ways we love, and that's why we work on sport, and yet also have you know very deep concerns about. Um, so what does it mean then in this most fundamentally personal and political way, right, to navigate those challenges? Um, and it's not that we have answers by any means, um, but rather the, the point of this conversation today is to just try to sort of tease out those experience, the experiences we've had um, and try to talk through how we've tried to navigate those challenges. Um, and I hope it, it, this conversation becomes a bit of a compliment to an earlier discussion we had, which is the closest one we did on this show that, that sort of broached this topic with Kim Shore about abuse in Canadian gymnastics and adv advice specifically that she had for parents who are trying to protect their children. So for those who are interested in, in this theme, um, I, I definitely recommend that you check out that episode as well because she had some really great material here, there. Um, so, what we wanted to bring you all together to discuss today is how people who are extremely critical scholars of harm, justice, and exploitation in sport engage with the question of their own children's potential participation. Uh, and in order to start off, maybe I'd love it if you could just each give us a brief window into the focus of your own research or scholarly pursuits, um, just to sort of contextualize for listeners where you approach this issue from. Um, so maybe let's get going in the order that I introduced you. Uh, Louis, do you want to start us off? Yeah, um, just to be brief, uh, I would say I use sports and, and specifically the black athlete and studying the black athlete just as a window to study American history. Um, and currently, you've already mentioned my other books, but currently I'm trying to write a book about the black quarterback. So um, I have a sabbatical in the fall, so I'm super pumped about that. So I am currently researching traumatic brain injury in the sport of uh, American football. Uh, and sort of like Lewis, I use the concussion crisis to look at larger societal anxieties um, about masculinity, about empire, imperialism, um, gender, uh, race, uh, to sort of look at where, what, how, how society is connecting with sport and what sport reflects about society. And I do um, critical pedagogy uh, in and around sports, so the things that we can learn, um, uh, good and bad uh, from from sport, or you know uh, how that that type of stuff works. Uh, specifically, I've done stuff on college sport. Um, more recently, I've uh, co-authored some things uh, and solo-authored on COVID sport um, and how that has uh, exacerbated uh, inequity uh, in terms of access, uh, particularly for kids. Uh, and then also sort of looked at my own uh, complicity in, in some of that stuff with uh, our children. Fantastic. And I think you all bring a really interesting like array of both like research experience, but then also like interest in sport, which I think we're going to dive into in a second. Um, so, of course, the other important part of this is parenting. And so we were wondering if, you know, going in the same order, um, each of you could give us a sense of how many children you have, their ages and what and what kind of involvement they've had in sport up to now. So I have uh, whew, three kids, and uh, I'll just say they're going, one's going into, I have a girl, gro girl going into ninth grade and a boy and a girl going into fifth grade. So everything's wrapping up this month. Um, they've been playing sports since day one, like sign them up just for the wide league. So so nothing big, but, but just enough for them to stay active. Um, so, you know, fall, soccer, 
winter basketball and then after that is track so i have two kids the fourth graders who are going to be fifth graders are in like a local track program get nothing super competitive and then my eighth grader is running track for her her middle school um and so i, I i'm emphasizing nothing competitive because we haven't got gone down the aau route i guess we'll talk about that later uh, but that's where we're at. So a sport for, for every season, keep them active. And then we also practice on the side. Uh, we get up a lot of shots, um, a lot of, a lot of drills, um, just so when they're ready to, to be super competitive, then they're, then they're ready to be super competitive. So I have one child. Uh, my daughter is six. Um, and as she's six, she hasn't done a ton of sports, but she has played soccer and tennis. Um, she's taken swim classes. I don't know if those count. Um, and she also does ballet. I should say that, uh, her participation has been uneven. Um, so for example, when she played tennis, as far as I can tell, this consisted of sort of sitting in a field with other five-year-old girls doing things like picking flowers and brushing each other's hair and discussing the importance of rainbows versus unicorns. So, and now that I think of it, I don't, I don't think I ever saw my daughter on a tennis court. So, uh, she's still being initiated. Um, and I, we're still gauging how interested she, she is in sport. Uh, it seems like we all have children around the same age. Um, we have three ourselves, um, uh, an 11 year old boy, a nine year old girl and a seven year old girl. Um, the boy, uh, is, uh, getting into an age where he's kind of, we, we let them play whatever, um, uh, really up until COVID. Um, so it, it could be just an array of things, but he's kind of settled in, um, on golf and baseball. Um, our nine-year-old is, um, a, a swimmer and soccer player, and then we'll do, um, rec type things as well and then our seven-year-old um is really enjoying softball she plays um rec um soccer and um uh, what does she do oh and she's she's like wants to be like her older brother she's starting to pick up golf clubs um the two oldest have gone a little beyond um uh, the the rec um situation when it comes to their sport um my uh, nine-year-old is a pretty strong athlete um for her age who knows how that stuff turns out um but she swims uh on a uh, on a club and she just um i think since we started connect connecting um she just made a pretty uh i don't know competitive travel soccer team and my son plays um golf on um, the Under Armour Junior Tour, which is a um, a very interesting thing and something actually I've uh, started researching with um, with a uh, colleague uh, at Fairleigh Dickinson. Um, so yeah. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you all of you for that introduction. Um, and and now I, I really want to get into the the heart of this right from the start. Um, and that is, you know, you've all indicated this, I think, in, in, in some ways already, but, you know, if you're going to enroll your kids in sports, um, 
then there's obviously a reason for that, right? There's some kind of incentive. There's something that's that's propelling you to to give them to to, to help provide them, furnish them with those experiences. Um, and yet, because of your work on sport and the ways in which sport can be harmful, right? There are obviously kind of threats as well to that participation or ways in which it raises some kind of you know concerns or challenges and, and what i'm trying to get at here is like there's a tension there right there's almost an inherent tension and it's not that there's like a right or wrong or an easy or obvious decision or solution or anything else um could you maybe just sort of start off here by speaking to the extent to which you do feel any tensions with respect to the decision of whether or not to involve your children in sports you know why you're doing it why you might be hesitant about doing it in other ways uh anything along those lines would be great yeah, so so for me, there's no no tension at all. Maybe, maybe during uh, COVID, there's a little hesitation that first year, um, but you know we're back, and and two of my kids, or, or at least my my boy now, he still wears his mask. The um, two others, they're done with it, um, and I, and I think he was like the only one, the YMCA, out of like hundreds of people wearing his mask at a certain point. And there, so there was there was worry there, but but when it comes to like getting hurt or anything else like that um they're playing pretty non-contact sports i, mean, I know soccer you can get uh, concussions but they outlaw heading at that age um and basketball obviously there's those 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 injuries but um no hesitation just because and, and i'll say this now i just believe in 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 right the goodness of sports at, at the youth level and and as i told my oldest my teen um, like this is not about you winning, even though she's super talented, she might not be the fastest out there, but she's really coordinated and skilled, but this is not about you winning this. I just want you to be a confident person. Right. And I want you to pick up these lessons about work ethic. And, and then, you know, four years from now, four or five years now, you're on college, you're on your own. And I hope that you have something to draw back on. Right. And so that's, that's, that's why I do it. Um, the other reasons are health, right. They, they stay physically active, um, during at least, at least if it's one practice a week in a game from september to june and then i got to kind of take over during the summer and, and get them off the electronics and stuff but that's you know that's it physical activity confidence and all that stuff you know as, as scholars we learn about sports um from why why we have youth in sports and, and i try to make sure my, my my kids understand that i really like that comment about the goodness of sport at the youth level um and I, I really, uh, I, I agree with that. Actually, as I was reflecting, as you were talking, I was th thinking that that was a really, a really great way to frame it. I, I'm an inveterate worrier, um, so I worry a lot. Um, and my reigning worry about sport and, and my daughter is really more the physical toll of sports. I mean, I, I do worry about physical injury. Um, but because I have a lot of those stats at my fingertips, I can kind of work myself out of that. Um, I think that the psychological aspect of it, I worry as I see my daughter's self or her personality emerge. But also, I think it, this comes from the legacy of my own participation at Division One and do, doing track in Division One. Um, and specifically just being really competitive with myself. Um, I, I, in general, tend not to be competitive with others, you know, in my, in my work with sport. Um, I tend to be just really competitive with myself. Um, and I found that grueling over the long term. Um, and I see that same tendency in my daughter, that she puts a lot of pressure on herself um, to excel according to her own standards and not, you know, sort of 
regular standards of a six-year-old. So that I think is, is a tension that I'm working with. Um, you know, she feels very comfortable in sport. She's basically grown up on a football field and, you know, at four, she was yelling scoop and score, you know, and ball security. Um, so she, you know, she understands the world of sport, but I think her place in it is something that I'm, I'm very much attuned to, um, when, when she's actually playing. I will say that in a little bit of a digression, she's had an interesting relationship to that sort of psychological toll. She played on a, a, a competitive soccer team this past fall, and she loved practice but really disliked games, um, so much so that she'd sort of crawl into my lap during the competition part of this, the Sunday soccer and refuse to go on the field. And she'd say, you know, this is so chaotic. Like, nobody knows the rules, and every kid's trying to – get the ball, which is true because they, they hadn't learned positions yet. Um, and I, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to balance really wanting her, like Lewis said, to, to, to see the goodness of youth sport and to get the health, the confidence, you know, all of those things that we know that youth get from, from sports, um, versus listening to her own, um, internal, understandings of how she felt about sports. So what we decided was that she would, during the competitive part of, of soccer, soccer Sunday, she would sit on the bleachers and she would support her team there. So she could go in and play if she wanted to, um, or she could sit on the bleachers and support her team that way. Um, and she did that for eight weeks. We sat on the bleachers uh, and, you know, cheered for her teammates. And then the last day of Sunday soccer, she turned to me and said, I just want to score some goals um, and walked onto the field and scored two goals and uh, walked off the pitch. And I began to see that she, that she actually is capable. Uh, I think she and I can can sort of negotiate this. But I but again, I, I, uh, I do keep my eye out for that. The, the sort of psychological demands. Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, we have children around the same age. I think we have a similar outlook on the um, use value of sport from a positive standpoint in the, in the aspect that you can set goals and try to achieve them, that there's, uh, my kids play this mix of team and individual sport where, um, you know, my son, if he's on the golf course, um, uh, and he's having a bad day, like it's a pretty lonely spot and figuring out a way out of that, I think, um, can have some transferable skill, I suppose. Um, my daughter, um, uh, my daughters in swim, uh, have similar things and then they have team teammates and things like that, where they really have, um, uh, you know, a good time and working with one another and making friends and, um, and all that kind of stuff where I think the tension comes for me specifically, and I think it has a lot to do with my academic upbringing um, more so than like my own upbringing in sport was that I had a blast uh, playing youth sport. I played low level baseball in college um, and have many good memories. I'm sure if I look back critically, some of the coaches probably did some things I'd would be embarrassed to you know recall, but um, uh, you know I had a good time with this. But I also you know went to Ithaca College when Ellen Starosky was there and Steve Mosier, and they were like youth sport, like sort of drilled this critical 
um, viewpoint of, of youth sport. Like there were classes on it there. And um, I've always been very wary from that point on of having my children participate, but then also like they love it and they're building friends and all that kind of stuff. So that when, you know, uh, the, that tension sort of results in, uh, you know, my daughter having this ridiculous swim in the summer where she learned to swim the butterfly in the morning and broke like a, I don't even know how old it was, but broke the pool record that night. And then she's getting recruited to be on this swim team at eight years old. And I'm reaching out to people like Johanna um, or uh, uh, Matt Hodler about, hey, <laughs> like, what is swim all about? Um, and just being critical and thinking about, you know, if we spend this amount of money on these sports, what could that have been used for um, for their futures and other things? And um, and trying to help them be rounded individuals um, other than um, their their experiences on the on the field or in the pool, um, which is a, a, a continuing challenge. Ryan, can I ask you something about what you said um, about the lonely place in in golf? That really resonated. How, how do you tell how, how do you navigate whether that lonely place on the golf course um helps build you know confidence to overcome adversity or ways to operate on one's own versus being too lonely for a kid at that age or just being lonely and you know being in a position where they don't have support around them Um, well, um, I can think of two, two sort of instances where this has happened, um, where one, where he goes out and like, so he plays on this competitive golf tournament series and, um, there were some kids that were shooting, they play like nine hole tournaments, stroke play, like ball that like professional rules basically. Um, but they play closer tees, so they're not as long. And some of the kids were shooting, uh, around par, which is really difficult even if you're playing that close and he was in the 40s which is about bogey golf um and he said dad how do i get better and i said well they probably practice a couple times a week i didn't tell him they also um, i saw they had professional caddies for some of these kids and things that i wasn't willing to do um and i said i you know have to do my job uh, but i'll take you to the course and you can go practice on your own um and he was really into doing that and um, other kids his age um, at this course have seen him and they've built a little community out of it. And he kind of started that um, in his little age grouping. And I thought, that's a thing that's kind of neat. Um, and he was willing to just kind of go out on his own um, anyway. That's the practice side of it. The um, competition individual stuff is when like you're having an awful day um, I can remember, um, and I caddy for him, as I, as I said, and there's like, in that sense, I'm like the coach too, uh, with this critical pedagogical, uh, academic background and I'm like learning how to motivate, um, him, uh, and, uh, especially when things are going bad. And I, I can remember one day where he, it was just all bad and it was 40 degrees and rain and it's not a fun time to be out on the golf course anyway. And especially when you're playing bad and I was like, Hey, buddy, you know, if you want to, you know, pack it in for today, I, I get it. Like, it's it's not good. Uh, but we're as far away from the clubhouse right now as we possibly can be. 
Um, so we can either, you know, do our best and finish, um, or we can we can end right here. And I, I wouldn't blame you either way. I wanted to give him that out. And he said, I want to play. And he came in um, and shot one over par on the last four holes. And I asked him at the end, you know, like, what happened? And he was like, I, I just wanted to get in as fast as I could. And so I played better. And I don't know um, how that, you know, if he'll have a memory of that um, or anything, it would have been 10, I think, when that happened, 9 or 10. So, like, those types of things, though, that you can kind of go, hey, things aren't going well. I can let this go one of two ways. I can give up. And he knew he had support to give up there. Um, or I can figure my way out of it. And maybe that that kind of goes and, and moves on from that, I, I hope. I'm not sure though. Yeah, that's that's a great example. So this this is really interesting to me, and and one theme that came up from all three of you that I, I want to touch on a little bit more here is this question around competition. Um, I have a child of my own who's six, um, and you know, and I should say also about myself that I am a despite for for listeners, I, I don't know how obvious this is, uh, but I am a deeply, deeply competitive person um, in terms of, you know, having internalized the sort of the logic of competition from a young age and the, the desire for it. Uh, I'm not trying to say that's necessarily that it's an innate capacity, but certainly like I was introduced to competition at a young age and I took to it um, immediately. And, you know, it's been a, you know, part of my personality, it shaped my personality. Although, you know, intellectually, it has been something that I have tried to work against, uh, you know, in myself and in my worldview in a lot of ways, because, you know, in terms of my understanding of exploitation and harm in the context of sport, I think a lot of that connects back to competition. And if I'm thinking about capitalism more broadly, um, certainly that connects to competition as well, right? So competition is certainly not something that I now fetishize, um, but it is also part of who I am. And that's, I think, really relevant with respect to the question of kids sport and what it teaches, right? And the thing I wanted to, to get at with this question ultimately is not even the experience that kids have in youth sport that is youth competitive sport, you know, which is part of this, but, but even a, a kind of uh, a pre-question before that, the experience I had like watching my child in the playground, right? When you know, she was like three or four, when competition was just becoming an idea, right? And you know, my child is someone who really enjoys playing with other kids. Um, so like if we went to the playground, the point would be to play with other kids at the playground. The social was, um, was the thing that she desired. Um, and yet like what started to happen, what I started to started to emerge so early was, was very clear. Like so sometimes the kids would want to play competitive game. What's race down the slide, right? Like something really basic like that. And the moment it became a competition, like, let's race down the slide, then it was like, I won. And then it was like, oh, no, I won. And suddenly, like, this really um, healthy social interaction turned toxic, like, on a dime, just like that. It was like the kids weren't having fun anymore. The game was ruined. And now, like, it was just bad moods all around. And that was just by, like, putting, putting competition on the activity. Um, and... As simple as that was, like, it was actually really kind of was profoundly striking to me, like, well, this is what competition is, right? Like, this is what competition does to human social relations. It turned me off of the idea of even, like, having her participate 
in sports, I would say, in, in a certain sense. Um, and like she's done, you know, she's been enrolled in sports classes and done various kinds of, you know, fairly recreational sport. And But I've always been kind of, I don't know, unnerved by what teaching competition does. I don't know if that's something that any of you have experienced in, in, in ways of your own. Is this, is this me now? Uh, man, I would say it's mixed, right? Um, look, look, I, you know, you sign them up for a Y league and they keep score, right? And they keep score for a reason. And even when they don't keep score at the lower level, kids understand what's going on. And I think um, when I when I watch my kids, sometimes my kids are on the the end of you know dominating a soccer game i've i've you know my kids been on a team that they win like 20-0 in a wiley game and, and you know and and so i have pretty i have pretty talented kids and then sometimes i've i've seen the other side where you know they lose by 50 points in in, in a game and 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 what happens is just in general then i'll talk about my kids in, in specific is that i think the way sometimes these leagues are set up, you turn kids off of sports, right? There's this goodness in sports. You pick up a lot of things, but as soon as you start keeping score and the teams are unbalanced, that's it. Uh, little little Timmy, who's no good at, at sports, it's not athletic, and his parents just put him in to, to play, is going up against somebody who, who practices three days a week or who's super aggressive just naturally. And the kid who's not aggressive... Um, is going to drop out of sports pretty pretty quickly because it's not fun anymore uh, for him. And and my thing about this was always, I think parents, if you're going to put your kids in leagues, you should also take time to practice with them on the side. Um, it makes it, and I, I don't want to come off like a jerk, but it makes it better for everybody's experience, right? So if we're like, why basketball? If the team has eight players and two of them are good and six of them are just starting out, you know the other six their their skill level they're, they're still keeping score right and and so it, it kind of drags things down not in a negative way but i think you as a parent and should should practice on the side and so when my kids started playing basketball my boy in the fifth grade or when he was five years old um he couldn't do anything he couldn't dribble he didn't really understand the game uh, they didn't let him bring up the ball and it wasn't fun. And then finally I said, look, these kids miss every shot they take. Just just stay right here by the rim. You want the ball, just stay right here by the rim and, and just go get the ball. And it turned out fine, right? He would just rebound and now he's carried that on. And eventually he got older and, and started to, to, to dribble and realize that he's quicker than everybody else. But even before the game starts, like a lot of times he's just hugging himself or, or during the game, the free throw line, he's hugging himself. He's not sure of himself. But once the game gets going, he's gone. The other thing is, I you know, I, I, I want my kids to understand, and I, I know this is so cliche, that, that you do have to, you kind of, you kind of got to work for things, right? And I came from, I came, so I'm different. I came from nothing. I don't know, you know, other people's background here, but I, you know, and, and, and my mom worked for everything, right? We, we were poor. She died working. Um, I remember when, you know, we brought her to, to hospice, she still brought work with her. Like, you know, this is it. And she was still trying to get work done. And that's just, the mentality I have, right? Um, it's the mentality I have when I do my work, when I, you know, I share a lot of research online, but because I'm always researching, um, because I feel like I'm, I'm gonna, I'll just outwork you, right? You might be at a, a one, you know, you might have a one-one situation. You might have 
um, you know, two years off to write a book and, and I'm three, three and I'm doing all these stuff and teaching summer school. That's fine. I'll just, I'll just outwork you. And that's my mentality. And I hope my kids pick up that mentality. Right. And, and, and I think I'm, I'm competent enough to, to, to be healthy, have them be healthy about it. Right. And so my oldest, I know I'm talking a lot now, but my oldest, we, I had to back off a little bit because I would, you know, with girl sports, um, some some are super super aggressive and, and they stand out. And and my daughter's not aggressive. She's talented, but she's not aggressive. And I didn't understand that, right? The difference between being talented and aggressive. And and so over the years, I've had to back off. And we just like, look, we're just we're just building, and 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 we're gonna slow down. We'll 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 get your skills slowly up, and then when you're ready to to you know feel confident or take a chance at you know stealing the ball or you know, go locking somebody up on defense to try to take over. That's fine. But I also put her in sports where she's like individual sports, like track and cross country, where that can come out a little bit. Um, and, you know, she runs hurdles. She's very talented, great form, the best form of everybody. But sometimes she psychs herself out and, you know, she, she, she trips over the hurdles or she doesn't race. And so last race, I was like, look, our goal is we don't, I don't care if you win or not. And, and I just want you to finish, right? Like our goal is just finish this 55 meter race, get over it. And we'll build on that. And, and, and I'm filming it and you can hear me in the film. Like, yes, she finished. Now she won her heat and, and she looked great. But sometimes for me, I just had to learn like there there's baby steps in this and kids develop at a different rate um and and so the kid who's super aggressive who dominates at eight nine years old when they're 14 to 15 it might not be the same and i didn't i didn't understand that until watching my other kids develop and then watching other kids a little bit older them um so that's i know i rambled a lot but that's that's where i'm coming from when, when i talk about com- competition and, and just being aggressive in sports i think that raises a really good point which is also that kids are different and that different kids will need different things. Um, so for some of the, your younger kids or for Ryan's son who's doing golf, you know, he really wants to push through. Maybe it's to get back to the clubhouse. Um, but he did push through really uncomfortable weather conditions or, you know, some of your, your younger kids, Lewis, you know, will sort of push themselves and enjoy that. Whereas your daughter might need to, you know, do like, just like you said, do individual sports where she can sort of go at her own pace. I think in my case, um, with my daughter, she just is probably not ready for competition. You know, I, I, I saw her doing some artwork maybe like a year or two ago. And she said, uh, I'm, I'm just not doing a good job. And it was like artwork, you know, she's just like doing art at the end of the day. Um, and I said, you know, let, let's just go do something else. Like, let's just, you know, you can have some screen time. And she said, no, I never give up. I never surrender. And, and when she said that, I thought this is a child who I'm really going to have to watch um, because she will put a ton of pressure on herself. It's just like I was, and I think, I think it's, my dad played football. I think it's really similar to how my dad was, um, that we probably are trying, Lewis, unlike you, you know, trying to work out the one, one load or work harder than the one, one load. I'm sort of just trying to, you know, overwork my, my three, three load. Um, so it's, it's about me against me. Um, and so I think my approach has been really to try to keep her out of 
competitive situations because uh, Nathan, what you said about the, um, about the playground really resonated. I know that moment when it turned from, you know, really just running around and playing tag and having fun and coming up with inventive games to who can run the fastest, who can, you know, win at hopscotch. And so we sort of have a mantra about around here, which is like, not everything is a competition and not everything has to be a competition. And when I think back on my career, I really didn't do very much competitive sports really until middle school or it was junior high school then. So seventh grade is really when I started competing. And before that, you know, I was just sort of, maybe my parents had me something in here or there. I, I guess I did a lot of ballet, but competition wasn't really part of my world until 12 um, and then really became part of my world. So I, I guess part of how I feel for my own kid, given her personality, is that she's somebody who will do better playing and playing sports rather than competing in sports. And I think that she showed me that in soccer where she was very, you know, ebullient and loved doing practices, but just didn't like game day. Um, and so there's a ton that she can learn from practices, but game day, you know, she may have to wait for a while or she may want to opt out and do artwork. Um, I think it really will depend on how her, her personality emerges. Yes, Lucia, I think you bring up uh, a really good point of uh, being supportive of their not, um, well, of children not necessarily wanting to play sport or be competitive and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think it's hard for those of us who grew up <laughs> like a sport, so, sport sociology adjacent as we all may be. Um, I, I think there is this. Um, sort of implied interest that we have as individuals in this um, in this podcast about um, uh, in and around sport that's going to transfer in some ways to our kids. They see us, you know, even if we're doing work while I'm watching sport or I'm, you know, going to do this research thing, that's going to get passed on. And so um, we've been um, very open to our kids trying other things. Um, one of the the big things that we run into with that is that a lot of our kids hang out with other sporty kids. Um, so they want to, you know, it's part of their own self-esteem and stuff like that to play um, with, with their, their buddies. And, um, and that often is on, uh, on the playground. And then that, you know, Hey, I play in this league, you should come out. You, you, you can throw a ball like this, or you can kick a ball like that. Um, and that's kind of how, that's um that's sort of picked up um uh, and i think to um the the sort of um uh, sorry I've, I've lost my train of thought nathan what was the question again well i was just you know i was trying to get at this issue of competition kind of fundamentally and what what that does if we're thinking about like you know just raising children, children learning about the world and the ways that they come to exist in the world. And and the thing that I had been struck by that kind of just really was like the prompt almost was like this way in which it, it just looked to me like you have this harmonious kind of, as Lucia put it, like these harmonious social relations where the kids are just playing and sport can be play. But then when you put competition on top of that, 
then it can like it just to me it looked like it toxicified like it became something different than play and it just like it undermined the various sort of social relations between the kids and their kind of development in that moment i got it got it yeah sorry that's um so yeah the competition um element and how it can make things um more challenging in terms of like the 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 fun that um kids have and all that kind of stuff i think in a house with three kids whether my wife and i push this or not there's like there's competition to see who gets ready in the morning first and who gets to pick the snack for school that day um and it's not oh like it's like that can be a toxic experience um but i do think um, as much as we have this sort of utopian view of the world and one that I probably write about or think about that doesn't require competition and more cooperation and things like that, if they're going to learn to operate in a neoliberal late capitalist society where this stuff is going to happen, whether they value it um, in the same way as someone who's a win at all cost person or not, I think it does benefit them to at least see it and experience it, even if it's bad. And even if they can kind of see it and go, I don't like this, I don't want to do this. And then getting back to Lucia's thing, like there are other avenues. You do not have to be competitive, but if you are, um, hey, you know, we'll support you in that as well. But we do, we, on car rides home from, games or tournaments and things like that i think we'll talk strategy for some of it but sometimes it's just the learning like um uh, my daughter taught like on the she's played on a travel soccer team this past year and um they've had to play against the same team four or five times and she comes home telling me how dirty this one opponent is and i for a fact saw my daughter throw the most vicious elbow this is, in oh, that game go ahead. no please go ahead like, please hey, go ahead um nine-year-old um what about what you did she was like i was just trying to get the ball and i was like okay well let's you know kind of talk about this um when you're when you're doing those things in the uh, heat of the moment in competition um you know like understand that those are other humans on the other side and they're probably saying and thinking the same things about you and um and that's fine it's competition in terms of the competition but you know sort of um i think it's part of our societal ways of of you know sort of there's a good and a bad and there's no in between um and sort of dehumanize opponents and i think that my where i've settled in is my role as a father with this you know critical pedagogical background is you know understand that you're you're playing with and against humans um and that, that have real feelings and their own backgrounds and things like that and um and that even in the toxicity of competition you can learn you can learn things um and that maybe you want to change about your your own self as well i know i keep jumping it oh sorry no sorry. No, I was going to say, I, I, um, I know I keep jumping in after what everybody says because it's so interesting and it's actually really helpful to hear from other people who study sport, how they're approaching sport in their own lives and with their children. And Ryan, something that you said um, about, you know, so, sociology of sport adjacent people, um, you know, we sort of have this idea of what sport can do and certainly 
my my daughter rolled over really early, crawled really early. Um, she walked late, but then she ran early. And I remember thinking, this is the way we're going to get into college. Like, this is how this is going to work. Um, and like thinking, okay, like she's going to be great at like the high jump and, oh, well, you know, that's really, that that's a lot of pressure. But, but what she, she's really humbled me in a lot of ways when, as it pertains to sport, because I have been really pro, you know, pro sport. I mean, obviously critical as well, but um, her not doing sport was never an option in, you know, in my mind, you know, from zero to, to two, it was like, what sport was she going to do is the question. And I recently asked her if she wanted to run because she can actually, she's old enough now to run with the, uh, with the, with the team that I ran with the Providence Cobras, um, which is a community team. And she said, run. And I said, yeah. And she said, around a track. And I was like, yeah, you run around a track. That's track. And she said, why would I want to run around a track? And I thought, that's a great question. Like, let's go check it out. And you can see, like, if you like it. But she was like, run around a track. Like, it, it was as if I was proposing that, that that night we go to the moon to have dinner. It was just ridiculous to her. And, and she sort of helped me, I don't know, maybe denaturalize some of the things that you know, that I've just made commonsensical over the years. And that I think, you know, Ryan, to your point about neoliberalism, that we really have internalized and that we probably want our kids to have some of in order to survive. But, you know, that line between survival and also rejecting the things that we don't like about neoliberalism, I, I think sport's really on the front line of that. Yeah, and Lucy, I just want to actually follow up on what you said because, I, and I, I think our children may be a little bit similar in the sense from what I'm, I'm hearing from you, and it was exactly the same. I, at like six months, you know, my, my daughter like lying on her back, but we have like video of this, you know, I, I, because I had this idea, same exact thing, like this idea of like, oh, of course my child's going to play sports because like, why wouldn't my child play sports? I do like, there's something that seems inherently pleasurable about that, right? That's part of the ex oh. human experience that I want to share since I love sport so much. Um, and like, so there I am and I'm like, I drop a ball. She's all excited and she, and she actually manages to catch the ball. She's lying on her back. She's like six months old and it's like, seems unreal. And it's, well, you know, this child's, you know, just a natural athlete, obviously. Right. Like, so like mapping out the future, as you say, and I had a very, I've had a very similar experience where as she's gotten older, it's sort of become more and more clear, like, well, look, like there's a lot more to this person than like my fantasies about, you know, sporting success. And it's really being guided by her more than anything, you know, like her, her basically saying like, I don't like competition very much. Right. Like it gives me this bad feeling and, and developing that awareness. Like when she was younger, it was more just like experiencing the hardship, but as she's developed more self-reflection, it's been like, do I want to put myself in a position where I get this bad feeling that I know I get right. Because there is this impulse towards perfectionism or whatever, or right, like this, this impulse to do everything right and well. And so therefore, like losing hurts a lot in this way that just feels, you know, deeply unhappy. Why do that when I can find pleasure in other ways and in other things? Um, and so like, you know, when, when the child is younger, they're, they're more of an abstraction in terms of the person that they will become. But as they become concretized in their real selves, it actually, they, they can guide you maybe. More and I think than, it's hard to expect. go against that. Um, because we live in a cult, it's hard to remind ourselves, you know, maybe she'll like singing, maybe she'll like, you know, something else. Um, I had a really similar experience 
Um, and I do have a, my family is a, a family of, of, of athletes. And I think who, I think my parents very much believe just sort of inherent goodness of, of sports and in competition for competition's sake. And I, I remember where I was on a trip with my parents um, and Kate rolled over for the first time. Um, oh, sorry. Well, my six-year-old rolled over for the first time at like three and a half months. And my mom had been in checking on her. And my mom came just flying into the living room saying, she rolled over, she rolled over, she rolled over. And it, it was just so clear that these sort of like physical milestones we're going to be things that were, or that my mom was connected to, okay, she's going to be able to do this in the future, rather than like, she rolled over. She feels more comfortable sleeping on her stomach. Like she really wanted to get to her stomach. Instead, we were all like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. So she could probably do this. She could probably, like you said, these, you know, fantastical um, abstractions that are completely pleasurable to play out um, when they're super young versus when they say, you know, um, when I was teaching Kate to swim, she said, I don't think you should teach me to swim anymore. It's not good for our relationship. And she, she, she was four. And I thought, you know, this kid probably has way more than, than I do in terms of self-reflection on, on what is, what is positive and negative for, for, for her in sport. I, um, I think, uh, Nathan and Lucia, you both have kids that are six, um, the interesting part is where that interaction right now is between uh, the parent and the child, um, and maybe Lewis can speak to this with an older um, an older child. Um, it gets even crazier when the comments go from you sort of going, "Oh, this is a scholarship athlete," um, potentially, um, where then you can kind of keep it to yourself. You don't say it to your child. You don't say it to anybody else. Um, and you have these sort of internal dreams of something, right? And then it's very different when your child excels at a, a little bit older of an age and they're getting it from others. So um, like my son, uh, we, we live a couple miles from a, a private high school, um, not even a couple miles, like a couple hundred yards. Um, and the golf coach has seen my son and um, has indicated interest in him coming and saying, you know, we could knock some money off of the tuition if you came here um, or my daughter being a very strong swimmer or soccer player and people saying, well, where is she going to go to high school? High school in Baltimore is uh, like college in most normal places. Uh, for those of you that don't know, it, the people will graduate from the private schools here and then go on to college. And still, when you ask them where they went to school, they'll talk about their high school. Um, so it's a, I should clarify that it's a unique aspect of here. Um, and when you start hearing that stuff, um, it is a, it's an even different sort of thing. And that's where the protective measures come in of, okay, this was, you know, a familial thing. Um, now, um, you know, now I know, you know, from reading people's work or listening to this show or, um, you know, uh, being taught by various people, like that highly competitive stuff, getting into college and playing college level sports, having no control over who the coach is, um, all that type of stuff. That's where um, I think a little bit more of the, the anxiety um, around what I've learned and what I research and, um, and my kids being in sport has come up for me. Um, and I don't know if, if 
Lewis has had similar things um, as as his children have aged. Yeah, um, I you know for for the oldest, like I said, she's eighth grade, going into the ninth grade. Uh, super talented, not not you know not not the best, but it has the potential to be really good. Um, for me, it's it's always been it's been like trying to measure my you know um, just relax on myself, right? Like you'd see them, they dominate in fifth grade, you know, sixth grade she's scoring like twenty two points, and then you realize that. You know, it took me time to realize that people develop differently and and need stuff different. And so I've I've had to back off on my own expectations just because, you know, why basketball is different from junior high basketball and and with the pressure of just being a kid and a teen and and COVID and and everything else like that. You know, things change. And and so, like I said before, I've I, you know, I've had to change my approach. We we've slowed down a lot of things. We we still like, you know, train on the side, but just. I had to measure my expectations and, 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 you know, and, and then make sure she develops what, what she wants to do. Um, but at the same time, I'm always like, yeah, you're not getting out of sports, right? Like you're good enough to make this team. You're good enough. You so, so you're going to do it. And then in four years, you never have to do it again. Right. And that's the reality. You're going to be done. You're going to graduate high school in, in four years. And you know, you never have to do it again with the younger kids. And I think, I think it's important for folks to keep in mind all this stops in sixth grade, right? Like, I mean, seventh grade, right? So we we put our kids in in these programs, like the Y program. That's why I'm I'm intentionally only doing Y programs, so so they could do sports, they could you know compete a little bit if they want to compete, but they're still there. It's a parent. Nobody's really yelling at them too much unless it's their own parent. Um, and, and then it's that after that it's done, right? You you have to make a team after that, right? You want to continue playing basketball past the sixth grade, then you know. For the most part, it's AAU, and you're playing. You, you got to be good, right? If you want to continue soccer, you better be good because all those free leagues are pretty much done out here. Um, and so, so I, I understand that. And for for now, it's like I'm just getting you into this, and and if you're ready uh, to move on after that seventh grade tryouts, then then we'll get there. And but the other thing is, what I I truly believe in with sports is preparation too. And my job is to prepare you to get there, right? This is the sport you want to do. Okay, fine. I'll prepare you to get there. But what is also not really being said here is that there are other parents doing it too, right? And sports has changed from when we were kids, when we could just go and play on the playground. Like, I love basketball. I learned how to play basketball at recess and on the playground and practice a little bit on my own. To now, if you want to be good at basketball, there are no games like pickup games to play. You got to go get a trainer and you got to train. And if you don't do that, that kid, the other kid that's eight, nine years old, he or she, she's doing it right. The top players have a trainer and then they're going into these tight top leagues and, and we're pricing, you know, people out uh, of the game. And so that's why I try to keep my, I'm intentional about keeping my kids in the Y for now. Uh, affordable with other kids who want to play just just play to play and then like I said when we're ready to get there if if, if my one of my kids is ready and they want to try out for a team okay we'll, we'll do that but for now it's just um trying to measure my you know to, to chill on my expectations and, and then see what happens um my my middle child my my boy he's I got two kids going into fifth grade um but he's he's super athletic and super quick and, and talented but he does it like i'll be like hey let's go play basketball no i'm good and i've had to learn that if he's done and he doesn't want to play then he doesn't want to play I, you cannot force him to do anything and that 
took time as a parent to be okay with that, right? Because I know how talented he is. And it, it's weird to see someone that talented who just wants to play to play video games or, you know, he's into stop motion and all that other stuff. So, so that's fine. But not wanting to go out there and just dominate, you know, 24-7 practice and, and just get to the next level and and from a young from him for a young age i've had to like okay we're good and and if you want to do it later we'll do it later um if not you know i'm just you know i'll just cherish these years between you know fifth five years old and, and sixth grade so i've intentionally hung back a bit i mean i don't i don't have kids which is part of it so i kind of know it more from the athlete and then the coach side and, and i think it's i think what makes this conversation so interesting and hopefully valuable for people is listening to kind of how everyone analyzes kind of what they've done and maybe how they've adapted and changed things. I mean, Lou, I really liked what you said about, you know, with your with your daughter, how you realize, okay, like, perhaps she's a little bit too much in her head. So like, we're just gonna like, take us at back. And even like you just reiterated, like, we're going to roll back our expectations, because if winning is the most important thing, right, that that can be such a barrier when there are so many more purposes to get out of sport and things to get out of it. Um, and so I, I just think it's so interesting. And even, I even think back to like when I was a coach and it was very much like, okay, what are swimmers doing today? What are their attitudes today? And kind of how can I adjust practice to kind of help them achieve what I hope they get out of it, right? To kind of pull back on the competitiveness and kind of help them be confident and help them be secure and enjoy it, which is what I think each of you have talked about in different ways in turn um and so i just want to like kind of interject and sort of say thanks so much for for really kind of diving into the nuances here because i think this is i'm hoping this is what's going to be really helpful because on a day-to-day basis right parents are making a, a billion decisions whether it's schedules of kind of what to do to prepare for the next day and kind of what are they going to eat and what do they have to do in the evening what do they have to do in the weekends and so it can be really hard to make to adjust and make these conscious decisions. And I imagine that it's a lot of labor, a lot of labor that I don't even understand as being a parent. And I guess where I'm going with this is this next question specifically about um, kind of handling coaches. And, And Ryan, you've mentioned this a little bit. And Lou, I mean, really each of you have mentioned this. And we all know, you know, based on the research and even just anyone who's paying attention to, to what's going on in the realm of sports now is that coaches tend, you know, to prioritize winning above all else once you get to the more competitive levels. Um, and Lou, you talked a little bit about, you know, with respect to, you know, emphasizing the why leagues and how that's a really great um, outlet uh, to kind of prevent maybe um, a hold off, maybe getting to the more competitive element. Um, but we all know that coaches can um, think that they deserve nothing but respect and that kind of any constructive criticism with parents is off the table, right? That any criticism is seen as a challenge. And, and I felt that too as a coach, I should say also. It's kind of something personally that's hard to take as your ego. Um, but we know a lot of this can start with, with youth sport um, in terms of, you know, coaches really emphasizing the win at all cost. Um, you know, doesn't matter about injuries, just kind of keep pushing because we want to see everyone pushing as hard as they can all the time. So I was wondering if we could um, have you all kind of reflect on, you know, to what extent you've already started to see this um, within um, your own kids' um, sporting experiences, and you do not need to provide specifics if you don't want to. But also maybe if you have not, you know, how do you envision handling this with your children, handling this with a coach, if you start to see coaches dip into and use some particularly harmful behavior with your kids and the teams? 
Yeah, I would say, um, so with my oldest, I just, I worry about when she gets to high school and, you know, the coach starts yelling, right? And that's kind of typical. Basketball coaches don't do it as much anymore, but I don't know if she could, she could handle that. She's very high anxiety, puts a lot of pressure on herself. And so a coach that says something to her just sets her off, right? And, and she gets in her head. Um, and so the last couple of years as she's played for her junior high team, she had one coach in seventh grade who's really intense, who, who was really like calling her name all the time. And as a parent, that's rough, right? Because I'm like, you know what? There's all these other kids making turnovers and doing all this stuff. And you never say anything but at the same time i told the coach i you know hold her accountable because i do want her to 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 get better and i don't know if he took hold her accountable to let me yell at her every second of the game <laughs> um right so so i you know i had to you know suck that up i was i was pretty upset but then the coach this year really cool guy spent a lot of time talking to the girls about life and everything like that and he was really approachable and i just told him like straight up you know she's high anxiety she's really talented we, we play a lot on her own i said all you need to do is just like gas her up just fill her with confidence and, and she'll be fine and, and think that's what she needs and finally you know he started that and you can see just a a change in her play so it's one thing for her dad to, to say something to her about how good she is and how you know oh you know you did this you did that but uh, you know i'm her dad but for another coach to say that it really helped her out right and, and you could see just how how she changed but um i still worry you know about you know coaches because i got yelled at all the time it wasn't that i was bad i was you know i was good but it's just you know it's just different generation right and you know nowadays i look on it i'm like why are you yelling at a 16 year old kid like every day like what's wrong with your life well you got to scream because maybe they were a half second slow on a, on a rotation or something like that like what what's what's really going on here and i you know i just hope that coaching is still not like that today um that that you could really coaches could build better relationships with their pl players being positive um so i just got to keep my fingers crossed and if not you know just i'll probably have to do a lot of talking throughout these four years um if 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 her coaches aren't like that who, who aren't constantly being positive because that's what she needs as an in individual somebody who who be you know who's positive who tells her you know she's doing a great job at all times and then maybe quietly corrects her um but i don't know because i haven't been around it in a long time but i just know when i was growing up in the 90s or 80s and 90s it was it was a lot different um so i i, I just hope my kids don't have that experience it's funny to hear you say 80s and 90s because um that's when i competed in uh in track and uh when i ran one of my coaches my college coaches would scream at me um in 800 meters and um I would always respond to his screaming. So if he said sprint, I would always sprint. And I could never remember what he said um, after the race. And my parents would always say, what did he say? What did he say? And I would say, I, I, I've completely blocked out what he has said. Um, I know that it made me go faster. Um, and I've always wondered if it made me go faster for the right reason. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I was hoping that my daughter would be interested in track is because this community club, not the, not the college team that I played on, uh, that I ran for, but the, the community club. I know that, you know, I've known that coach now for 30 years and uh, I know exactly how he motivates um, athletes. I know how he works with them and I know how he works with their parents. 
Um, and I think he's just extremely gifted. Um, it is uncomfortable. You know, one of the places that I've seen, I mean, again, you know, Nathan, as, as you mentioned, our, our, our kids are young. And um, so I haven't had a tremendous amount of exposure to, uh, to, to parents on the sidelines or, or coaches going, you know, being really, really intense. Um, but I've noticed, and I wonder if other people have had this experience in swim classes. Um, the, it, uh, swim classes seem lawless to me in terms of like what a swim teacher can get away with um, <laughs> or what a swim teacher can ask the, the, the swimmer to do. Um, and it, it like reminds me of those reality shows about like football in Texas, you know, for like six-year-olds who are getting like completely pressured to tackle, um, you know, to tackle each other. So, so, Kay, so Kay was in a swim class and... Um, I don't know if it's because parents are, it doesn't seem like it's competition, so therefore it's just practice, so it should be okay. Or, and Johanna, you probably have some, um, some, some thoughts about this too. Or if parents are just so scared about their kids not knowing how to swim that they're sort of willing to let everything go or, you know, whatever the, the swim teacher says. But Kate did some classes that she was, I was behind a, glass sort of glass walls so I could see what was going on and there was so much pressure for them to go under when they were really young um to put goggles on when they were not not comfortable with that to float when they didn't have you know a lot of sense of what that would allow them to do and I was like ready to break through the glass I mean I it just like took everything for me not to like run onto the deck of the pool and and grab her um whereas a lot of the kids were sort of like hyperventilating and crying and the parents were like, no, you're going to do this. Um, that, that's the only place that I've seen this tension um, and, and felt really uncomfortable. Like, not that it was really my place to say, you know, like this could have long-term consequences with your kid's relationship with the water, um, which is what I worried about with, with my daughter. Um, I ultimately pulled her out, which, you know, doesn't solve the problem of, of the other kids, but I just, I felt like it was disproportionately intense given what kids were doing as five, you know, four-year-olds and five-year-olds in, in, in other, uh, other places in sport. I'll just interject. I, I think that's so, I think that's so interesting. And I'm trying to remember, I mean, in all my time kind of coaching and teaching, I mean, I did work with a lot of kids that age and I have to say, I don't know if I questioned whether I was pushing kids too much. Like, so that's why I'm, I'm actually really glad that you bring it up because most of the time when I was coaching, I didn't have all these like critical lenses until like the last couple of years. Um, I think a lot of it, I think some of it is that, um, I mean, depending on who's doing the lessons, right, with sort of the fear of like, if, you know, a, a, a child is only in lessons for like a couple of weeks that like, if we don't teach them to be comfortable with the water that they could drown. So part of it is a fear. Um, but I also think part of it is like, well, you know, we think there is the thing that like, we, we think that kids should be comfortable in the water. They should learn how to float. They should learn how to blow bubbles. And if they don't, we're going to make them comfortable, which is obviously like 
forcing it too much and is it is not good either. I mean, I do know someone who um her when her daughter uh was really young and she was she's tall for age, she's always been very tall and she should have been placed in like a 3 to 4 year old group but was placed in a 5 to 6 year old group simply because of her height and just totally terrified her and they did a lot of the things you Lucy are talking about where they forced her to do things when she wasn't ready and the the parent was not was not comfortable um, kind of saying, I don't think this is the right group. And also, I don't think this is okay, but did eventually pull her out of it. And the girl for many years was terrified with the water until when she was older, she had like a one-on-one teacher that said, okay, we're going to take this super slow. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that's something that like, you know, even as like some coaches and some teachers, we don't really think about enough. Um, and so I think it's something that's really important for people to hear. No, I think that's um, uh, really good stuff from everyone. Um, uh, just thinking of, of what to add here, uh, I guess um, on on the flip side of what both uh, Lucia and Johanna have just brought up is the our daughter, who's the strongest swimmer of the three kids, um, was the one who was the most afraid when they were in the children's swim stuff, to the point that when... Um, we joined this, um, the, so it was before COVID, we joined uh, a country club where our um, uh, men's and women's golf teams play. So we got like a pretty substantial discount to, to join there. Um, and my college friends always make fun of me knowing where uh, I, I have similar uh, upbringing stories to Lewis uh, of, of me being a, a country club member um, uh, on top of what I do for a living. Um, but when she joined that swim team, um, I thought she was always going to finish last place and all that kind of stuff. But uh, maybe the time away from the, you know, three and four year old uh, terror of learning how to swim to, you know, being seven, I think when she, you know, started swimming at this club um, really, something happened. I don't know. Um, you know, so it, every individual probably has their own things um, with that. And um, just, just interesting thoughts on that. Anyway, um, the, um, the big question I was thinking of here is like, I don't know what I'm going to do when there is a problem coach, because um, essentially my kids have played rec things forever. Um, Mer- um, sorry, the middle one got on the um, the local rec team, travel team for soccer, um, and then recently made a more competitive club team where we have no, it's not a parent, it's like a professional coach, um, and professional in the sense that they're, they're not affiliated with any child on the team. Um, that's kind of how I delineate that in my head. So this is going to be our first experience with that. Um, uh, and I'm not sure. Like, I'd like to think that I'd be able to tell Meredith or uh, our, our daughter what to do um, uh, or that she can open up to us if she doesn't have a good experience with this coach. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens when we're in that moment. Whereas for our oldest, he, you know, picked up golf and really kind of has started to focus on that. His only caddy, the only person who's ever carried his bag and talked to him about anything, has been me. Um, and it's not like I'm a perfect um, figure for that moment, but 
um, it, all the time, but you know, like I have <laughs> ostensibly have some control over what gets said and how we, um, you know, sort of navigate the course uh, um, as a co uh, from the coaching perspective. Um, I have not to this point, even though most coaches want to win, most kids want to win a particular game, have not seen this um, hyper-competitive focus on winning um, yet. I'm wondering if this could be a, a sort of positive benefit of this culture of surveillance that we have now, whereas growing up playing um, sport in the 80s and 90s, um, I remember like I had a fourth grade basketball coach who threw chairs like like he was Bobby Knight. Um, it's not even a joke um, and would scream at kids and stuff like that. I just I feel like. There's got to be some element of, hey, this is going to go on some recording or you can research more. This is something that Johanna ta taught me about swim um, is you can look these people up and at least see that there's something out there, some sort of reporting on on these people is it perfect absolutely not but um i think we have as parents a little bit more information and can go in with a little bit more of um you know an open uh, like with our eyes open um and uh, certainly there have been uh, as the kim shore episode that you all did you know <laughs> brings up there's a lot of covering up that goes on um but uh I'm hoping, you know, that that we've created an environment with our kids um, that they, you know, can feel uh, when the time comes that they're being coached by others. If things aren't going right, um, they can speak to us and we can help them navigate that particular situation uh, as well as we can. Yeah, uh, you both like really hit on something that like you, you made me think about how that question of coaching, I guess, is is inherently in a way connected to the parent's role in terms of, you know, like, I like how you sort of refer to it as surveillance, Ryan, like the, 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 the upside of surveillance, usually we're talking about the downsides of surveillance, um, but like the upside of surveillance in this case, and, and it made me think very vividly, like, first of all, I, my child has been doing swimming lessons, so that, that, from what you were saying, Lucio, is on my mind as well, but then it also made me think about actually like a dance class, to be honest, like, so for our child, like she's enrolled mostly in park. One great thing about Durham, I will say, like Durham has a wonderful parks and rec program. It's like really well subsidized. Um, and so like kids have access to some fun programs for that are really inexpensive. You know, it's one of the terrific things about living in Durham. Um, and so, you know, we've tried enrolling her in all kinds of different things for that reason, right? Because it's just like, there's, there's no downside to trying things out. And so dance was on that list. Um, and I was shocked. She was a little bit older, but it was a dance class that had included two-year-olds. It. it was like, it was some absurd range, like two to four, two to five, even. <laughs> so that's with the range of the kids are completely different, obviously at those different ages. Um, but there were like really young kids in this class. And there was the expectation from the instructor that no parents would be in the room. Um, and I found that really shocking at the time. Like, how could you possibly entrust your, like, basically toddler almost like to someone that you, on the first day, you'd never met them before. Right. Cause I mean, that was the policy from day one. Um, and it's very disconcerting. It was also just almost inherently disconcerting, right? Like what is happening that you can't, that parents can't be seeing or experiencing. Um, and of course, part of it is this idea, and I think we could talk about this. So I, I think it's a real question. I'm not trying to foreclose it. 
like from a coaching standpoint, there's clearly enormous upside to removing the parent so that there's not like a contradicting sort of figure of authority there. Children act differently when they're away from their parents, sometimes in very beneficial ways, even for the child, right? In that they have behaviors that are sort of ingrained and then they try things out in different ways when they're with a different authority figure and that can be really beneficial. So there's a lot going on there. Um, but yeah, there's just something for me a bit disturbing about having to really excise the parent from the process and yet we also know that there are all kinds of problems with, uh, like, Lewis, you mentioned this, like the idea of <laughs> the coach in the crowd, who, right, who might be causing all kinds of problems, right? That like way too overactive, causing harm to their own child, to other kids in that space, right? Certainly coaches object to that. Um, I don't know. I was curious about your thoughts on that aspect. Nathan, what was the rationale for not having you, not having parents around for two and three-year-olds? It, it was not clearly stated. I mean, that was a major limitation of what was happening in that moment. So I, I don't even want to speak to the rationale that, the, like, I was basically guessing what the rationale might be. I think they just felt it was easier to teach. I also wondered if it was a part of a dance call. Like, I had heard from other parents, like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, in other studios, it's not even a question. Like, it's amazing that they're even letting us consider this here in this Parks and Rec class. But, like, when it comes to teaching your kids dance, like, the parents are out of there. Um, which was new to me. I had I had no back. I had no familiarity with that culture, um, so I didn't know one way or another like what was or was not true based on my own experience. And I'm like, and that's a moment where I would say, as a parent, like we also weren't tolerating that. Like my child was older; she was like four, and she didn't like there was a glass that I could look through on the other side, and like I was like, okay, I'll go there, and that's fine. She's comfortable with it. But like I was trying to speak on behalf of the two and three year old parents who seemed like oddly to be just going along with it, right? Because that was the norm. And so that was, they were going to accept it, even though their child was screaming, right? Because they'd never been separated. And they were like, don't leave, don't leave, crying. And the parents were just going to leave. <laughs> sort of thinking like, what are you talking about? Just stay. No one can force you to be separated from your child in this moment, right? Like you can look out for them. You can care for them. You don't have to listen to this policy. Um, but but I mean, your question, to, to your question, I don't really I mean, know one of the, the things that makes me think of in terms of coaching and is is you know like ryan said is to is to use surveillance to our benefit but also to teach our kids that they can come to us if if there if there are requests that are egregious or if there is mistreatment um and also that a coach doesn't have you know this you know king-like or you know d doesn't have the their say is not the be all and end all. Um, and I think, I think for, there's a balance between, you know, respecting your coaches, like Johanna was saying, like respecting your coaches and listening to them. And you can't have like, you know, a team of 22 all in revolt, you know, negotiating exactly what, you know, they're going to do for practice that day. But it seems like a, a healthy bit of skepticism um, or at least a line of communication with the parent is important and that that extension of that would be that the parent would also be around to sort of see what the dynamics are, what the relationships are on the field or on the pitch or, you know, on the track. Uh, Nathan, um, I, so my daughters danced, um, and they still do, um, in some club stuff. And my, my wife was, um, in dance all the way up she was in the boston ballet um company um and when my girls were in their first class i had the same exact reaction as you uh, and my wife 
um, indicated to me that this is how it's done. Um, and it's mostly so that the kids pay attention to the teacher. That's the theory. I don't know <laughs> if that works. Um, and certainly, um, I think my mind went to similar things to you, like, are they just, you know, can this coach do whatever they want and all these kind of things. Um, and it took uh, about a month <laughs> for me to um, stop peeking through the window every second um, and all that kind of stuff. Because um, we had like sort of glass where the kids couldn't see you. It was a, a perfect panopticon. Um, <laughs> so they couldn't see you. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and you could watch uh, a little bit. And, um, and then, you know, I was assured that the, the, it was on camp. It's a Towson University community dance actually has like a long history of um, serving the, the local area for dance uh, all the way up through adulthood, late adulthood. Um, and we could see, you know, this is actually a good thing. Our daughters are loving it, all that kind of stuff. But um, I had, like, I, I forget which episode I heard you talking about it. I was like, I had that exact like, reaction. Um, what are they doing in there with our three-year-old? And why does the glass have to be, uh, or the shade have to be pulled over or whatever it is? Um, and uh, and I, I did listen to my wife on that one and kind of acquiesced, but not without um, some consternation even after she was like, no, this is how it's done. Um, so I think we get, honestly keep talking all day, but we want to be mindful of your time. Um, and so we just kind of want to end here by asking, you know, is there anything else that you would like to add to what we said previously? Maybe something that uh, we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up uh, before we wrap up the show? Uh, no, I would just say just stay um, for those parents out there. Just stay positive and then understand that kids develop at a different a different rate. Um, I think that's that's been helpful for me to understand like okay you might not be the best at fourth grade but you know you you know people get better people get bigger they get more mature so if you're a parent who's like just really into that and really believes that your kid's going to the next level uh just be patient and if they and once you see that they're not again be patient yeah i think the only thing that i can say is that it's been really great to talk um and to hear from the different perspectives you know both as sports study scholars and also as parents to hear how, you know, you all have navigated, uh, you know, the entry into, into the world of sports. Yes, this is um, uh, something I very much look forward to and have enjoyed uh, myself. Um, I think too, uh, Louis, you, you, as you said, you may have the smallest kid who's going to grow. You might, uh, you know, our middle child, who's, you know, a beast right now on the, on the soccer field or in the pool, may not continue, right? And, um, and having space for that is good um, uh, for them to, you know, pursue other interests, that it doesn't have to be so focused at a young age. Um, I think one thing that I've done professionally around this um, that I don't know if I advise or not, um, but it was something um, in some of the research on youth sport and particularly on these exclusive, exclusionary sports like swim clubs, um, uh, AAU, um, things like that, is um, there was a lot of research about the history of these things or like how they're working that pulled the researcher out of it. And what I'm trying to do in my current role in, in research is say, hey, my kids are in this. 
um, and I'm experiencing these things, what are the pressures I'm feeling and I'm trying to write my way through this experience? I don't know if it's being done well or not. I, I suppose that's time to, you know, to, to grow, I guess. But um, uh, I would, you know, encourage other academics to kind of, um, you know, put themselves into it, I guess, and, um, and into this the research if they're so inclined. Um, and uh, and kind of see, you know, well, how am I contributing to inequity? How am I, you know, grooming the next neoliberal and all that kind of stuff? Um, and what can we do about this to do it in a more um, uh, open manner? Thanks for that, Ryan. That's terrific. Uh, and I, I think a great note for us to end on. Uh, so Lewis Moore, Lucia Trimber, and Ryan King-White, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. 